your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program today on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. This is going to be a program about the role that uh, family practice or primary care physician plays in the overall picture of dementia. We are going to have a wonderful guest on the program shortly. He is uh, uh, held up from getting out of his office, but will join us as soon as he can um, get here. Let me introduce him to you. His name is Dr. Ellen Schultz. Uh, Dr. Schultz is a graduate of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, a wonderful medical school, and he is board certified in family practice. He has been uh, practicing medicine since 1992 in the state of Texas and has uh, had a somewhat varied career in the in the different roles that he has served. He was a military physician serving in the United States Air Force and was actually a flight surgeon at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida at one time. And um, uh, he had left the Air Force and has been in practice since that time. Um, I have had the pleasure of knowing him for a number of years and have uh, admired the work ethic, the integrity, the very high level of commitment that he has made to quality care for his patients. And he and I have had many discussions over the years about the kinds of things that uh, need to be done to provide good quality care for persons with dementia. Now, there are many different kinds of physicians that work in the world of dementia. Probably most commonly, you see neurology and you see psychiatry, but there are others as well. But at the hub of all of this is the primary care physician. And um, so I felt that it would be a wonderful opportunity to have a discussion on this program with Dr. Ellen Schultz and um, uh, how he sees the role of primary care in dementia care. Ellen has just walked into the office, and I am delighted that he got here. He is a heavily sought-after individual. Ellen, welcome to the program. I've introduced you and bragged on you. And we will go from here. (laughs) Thank you very much, Sam. I'm glad to be here this evening. You know, um, 
the situation that comes up this evening so much uh, characterizes the challenges in dementia care. You know, in the primary care physician's office, there are many, many, many things to deal with each day. You know, there are um, annual wellness checks and things like that. Um, there are individuals trying to deal with hypertension that won't get stabilized or uh, chronic renal failure, so many different kinds of things. And it's the, um, the area of dementia that is so insidious, so gradual and slow in its onset that um, uh, has a hard time making itself known um, in the uh, clinical care setting, right? It does have uh, a very insidious onset, and I think that it's critical uh, for primary care to be aware of dementia. Uh, I think we have a unique role, uh, knowing the patients personally, knowing their families, knowing their baseline cognitive status, and being able to judge when there's a change or have the wherewithal to have the relationship with the family who is able to communicate a change in mental status when it first develops as opposed to when it becomes full-blown. So, if we look at it from the standpoint of, let's say, neurology or uh, a neuropsychiatrist, um, at the point that the patient comes to them with a memory issue, it has already been determined that some type of problem exists and needs to be worked up. But for this person that you may have known for 10, 15 years, that you have take, provided care for through the process of retirement, uh, through um, um, the the raising of uh, his or her children, the the subtle onset, you are in a unique position to hear what the family has to say and to know the validity of the family's reports and concerns as well. I think that that is very true, and the family typically has more access to their primary care physician than they will to a specialist with whom they don't necessarily have that depth of relationship. And in addition to seeing them through their relationships and their raising of children, we also know how they deal with other medical problems and kind of have a little bit of background on their cognitive status uh, as well as how they've dealt with other medical problems and how those could be affecting their thinking and whether this is normal or whether it's a deviation from what we see usually and is some sort of manifestation of uh, mild cognitive impairment or full-blown dementing illness. Okay, so let's take a, a little bit different perspective here. You know, um, we can look at things from the perspective of people with an interest in dementia and say this should happen, that should happen. What is the life of a primary care physician like? What is your daily activity like? My daily activity varies with the season. Right now we're in one of our busiest seasons where on top of the chronic medical illnesses which can have periodic exacerbations, we're also dealing with uh, communicable disease and exposure to communicable diseases, most uh, prominent of which right now is influenza. So it is trying to care for the needs of a population yet also understand the needs of individuals and know when to differentiate between the two because individuals are going to have specific needs that may not necessarily be flagged on those of a population. And I think that's the trick in primary care. Uh, 
it's a real challenge, and sometimes I do better than than at other times. You know, um, I suspect that one of the great joys of your practice is that relationship that you've had with patients over the years, seeing them through so many different situations and things like that. And um, uh, for you, as as well as for family members, it is heartbreaking to see cognitive changes come into play. It is very heartbreaking, and many times people have an easier time dealing with a malignancy, a cancer, a an ischemic heart disease, a uh, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, um, trauma with uh, broken bones, pneumonias, as opposed to cognitive dysfunction, which is much more subtle but yet pervade, pervasive in that person's way of living and their way of interacting with family members and and responsibilities. It's a huge paradigm shift when a person develops dementia. Typically, we see those who have been taken care of have to step into the role of caretaker, and it can be a tricky transition. One of the great demands on your time and on your brain as well is keeping up with all that you have to keep up with in so many different areas. You mentioned communicable diseases, for example. You know, if if primary care physicians don't do their job there, things can get out of control very quickly. How do you keep up with all that you need to know in so many different areas, whether it be, I mean, you need to know what's happening in the area of blood pressure control, ischemic heart disease, um, uh, uh, so many other chronic conditions, and then, you know, of course, our interest for this program, the dementias, but then the the flus of the season, the flus that are projected for this year, the strains of flu. So, how do you keep up with all that? I take advantage of as much information technology as is currently available. There are many good resources which have become much more readily available and constantly updated with information technology. And this is where I see the beauty of traditional medicine blending with today's culture of information technology and using that wisely to stay up to date and care for our population without allowing this information technology to run over people and cause medicine to be more impersonal. I know that uh, in today's world, the information shortage that may have been there in generations past is not the problem. We have a tremendous amount of information available and one of the great challenges, two of the great challenges actually, one is assess the validity of the information. Um, This is a joke, but Abraham Lincoln first said, don't believe everything you read on the internet, right? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Very much. And that's something which is the beginning of conversation Many times when people do their own searches on the internet, and and I take it as that, it's the beginning of conversation, not necessarily the end. And I subscribe to different databases that are peer-reviewed and very trustworthy, uh, allowing me to use the information gleaned from specialists all over the country and all over the world with which to give my patients the best care possible. You know, you bring up an interesting point, um, and um, that is basically that that 
patients, family members, caregivers will do a lot of research on their own and that can be a wonderfully helpful thing or that can be a challenging thing for you, I'm sure. So help our listeners understand when is it a wonderful thing, when is it a challenging thing? I think that we have the God-given gift of naming things for good or not so good and that's where I see the internet. I look at it as always a very good thing and use it to uh, initiate conversation, to uh, comment on things, and uh, I let people know if I don't have the answer, but I will find out. And I use the different information that they have come up with uh, along with our relationship in order to steer them in what I feel is a, a good direction which is going to be positive uh, for their health and well-being as opposed to negative. There certainly is a mixture of information. For example, prostate cancer screening with the blood test PSA is something that we deal with on a daily basis and opinions and research is all over the place and I think that's where you have to take a population-based recommendation and individualize it to the person that you're working with and make them part of the decision-making type process. And what is a population-based recommendation? How would you define that? Population-based recommendations, for example, would be that people over the age of six months uh, until death uh, receive an influenza vaccination on a yearly basis. That's a population-based recommendation. Now, certainly there are individuals who feel very strongly about and are scared about different vaccinations. And so that's where the give and take comes in and trying to educate individuals, helping them make the best decision possible. And even if they don't make the decision that I necessarily feel is the best, making sure that they know the alternatives should they develop an acute febrile illness with upper respiratory type symptoms that they go for care when antiviral medicine will be effective and that they know when to to access care. Thank you. Well, we are going to go to a break and we will be back in just a couple of minutes with Dr. Ellen Schultz. Please stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. By making some important changes in your life, you can move forward from where you are 
to where you wish to be. It is becoming the change you want to see. It can be a sort of experiment, if you will. On Moving Forward, Wellness One Step at a Time, your host, Dr. Serena Wadhwa, will introduce you to ideas that can help improve your health, relationships, and finances. You probably have at least one part of your life that needs improving. Make an appointment now to join us every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Dr. Ellen Schultz, a graduate of a wonderful medical school, Baylor College of Medicine. He is board certified in family practice and is now in private practice after his military career and um, and after having done some other fascinating things as well. And I am delighted to have him here. He is a man who sets very high standards for care for his patients and is committed to them both personally and professionally. And Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you, Sam. We have a question emailed in from Anna. Can you describe your role after Alzheimer's or an irreversible dementia diagnosis has been made? I feel like specialty areas get more recognition for their role, but I'm sure the family practice doctor continues to play a big role in post-diagnosis management. After diagnosis, the relationship does not end, but takes on another facet where you see how this disease process affects the person's overall health and function. And my goal is trying to maintain a person's function and their dignity uh, throughout life and through the dying process uh, that we will all eventually face. So I look at this as just an extension of that relationship and another dimension of it dealing with dementia as that affects a person's overall health and knowing them before dementia and then during that process I think is pivotal in seeing how it affects all of their other medical conditions as well as their relationships with other family members who take on different roles and adopt new strategies in this thing we call life. Well, thank you for that explanation. Um, At what point Alan, is it um, best to refer to a specialist, neurologist or neuropsychiatrist, let's say? I rely very heavily on my specialists for confirmation and guidance on initiation of plan of care. The other thing which is very important that I feel in order to use specialty care is to realize when I get beyond my expertise and there are difficulties with an initial treatment plan, what do you do then? And and that's where I rely very heavily on my specialist colleagues uh, and 
their wealth of, of knowledge and expertise in these specific uh, matters. Well, let's look at the situation now where a family has come to you and has said, we're worried about mom or dad. We're worried that their memory is failing and um, they basically bring this to you not knowing what to do next. You go through the workup. And by the way, for our listeners, the overwhelming majority of the uh, workups for a dementia diagnosis are by primary care, actually, not by specialty physicians. But you go through the workup. You find no reversible conditions that that uh, would give you an avenue of treatment and hopefully arresting and, and reversing symptoms. And, and so you're left with um, one of the diagnoses. Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body disorder, vascular dementia, the most common, um, you're left with one of those diagnoses and you are now going to sit down with this family and somehow deliver this information and provide guidance. It's a difficult conversation to have. No one wants to have the diagnosis of dementia and failing cognitive function. So we take it gingerly, and I try and make sure that the person has supportive individuals with them so that we can begin this conversation and begin this journey. I try and reassure them that I want to promote their independence and that we can use different strategies with respect to lifestyle, with food supplements, with memory-type practices and with medicines in order to support that. I try and make them aware of the different medicines, their different costs, their different delivery systems, and how frequently they have to take these medications and the possible side effects of each of the medicines and reassure them that we can try one and if that is not effective, we certainly have other avenues. I also talk about confirmatory uh, second opinions so that everyone is comfortable with that. Uh, we are fortunate enough to have major medical centers as close as Dallas, uh, Temple, Texas, Houston, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, uh, Lubbock, Texas. We have very, uh, a very wide variety of, of places to go. I try and find out where they have the most support should they want a second opinion at one of these tertiary care centers so that that is as easy as possible. If they have family members that are living in Houston that are saying come down and allow a consult with one of the specialists in this area, I am completely supportive of that and will do whatever possible to make that consultation happen. Do families often request a second opinion? I actually encourage second opinions and if they don't ask for a second opinion, I ask if they're sure they don't want a second opinion. Because the last thing I want to do is to cause harm or wreak havoc or have somebody unsure of what we're doing and then have that affect how well the treatment occurs and works or how well it does not. 
One of the um, difficulties is that that we really have to operate in our thought processes in two different realms. One is what are the symptoms doing? The memory impairment is either there or not there. The language impairment is either there or not there. But the other is what is going on in terms of some neuropathological process? Is this a degenerative thing that follows the pattern of Alzheimer's? Is it a degenerative thing that's going to have the complications of Lewy body disorder with the visual hallucinations and things like that? Um, is it um, uh, something more related to ischemic heart disease, you know, generalized vascular disease that, that would uh, force a primary emphasis again on managing risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So, so we have two lines to think of here, and I guess on the one hand we could say dementia would be about the symptoms, and um, and then when we talk about specific diseases, we recognize that they're only confirmed by autopsy, for example, with Alzheimer's or Lewy body disorder, and um, and we accept that. Uh, you know, I understand general agreement is 90, 92% accuracy with that diagnosis as to etiology, not as to whether there's dementia present, but as to whether it's Alzheimer's or Lewy body or or um, frontotemporal dementia or any of a number of other disorders, right? That is certainly correct, and that is where the science of medicine and the art of medicine intersect, and I think that's where we as a society need to realize that medicine is both an art and a science and that neither is a 100% the truth, that it takes both the art and the science uh, for the 90% and then the 10% until you can reach a good understanding of the etiology causing those symptoms. And that understanding may not be there initially. That's where the second opinion comes in and then a the family gradually gains awareness of the fact that this is not a yes, no, an up, down, or a right, wrong sort of answer, that it is sort of, it, that it is a process and determining how the individual relates to the therapy as much as what the recommended therapies are on more of a population or a disease type diagnosis. You know, uh, that is very well stated, and um, the needs of the support system, the family, especially normally there is one primary caregiver that steps up. It may be a spouse, it may be one of the children that lives nearer or something like that, but there's somebody that steps up that's going to need more training, more knowledge and education than the rest of them, and will sort of be the lead person in the whole situation, right? That is certainly correct, and you hope that that happens. In some instances, it does not, and that's where the real difficulty is, trying to support a person who does not have close family members. In our society, we have people living so far apart that many times it's not necessarily a family member, but someone from the community who has a relationship with that person who steps up. And it's always really nice to see. However, it can cause conflict then with the family members who are living distantly how to fit into this relationship. Well, and of course also there's that that um, for you and me frustrating and, and um, a heart-wrenching situation where a 
an older person who is developing dementia simply does not have that family support, either due to trauma that has taken place through the family history, sometimes even over generations, unfortunately, or due to um, illnesses in, in the children, illness or early death in the children, prior death of the wife. And so we sometimes see that person who really is out there on his or her own having to manage this. Wait, it's funny that you mentioned that, and actually it's not funny, but I have some people, a handful, who have reached their 90s and are approaching 100, and they, through their health, have outlived many of their peers, and from for one reason or another, they may not have children, and so they find themselves dreadfully alone as they face uh, these illnesses, one of which is dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very correct. And of course, you know, I I may uh, talk a little bit after the break. We're just about forty five seconds from a break here, but uh, talk about other situations. There are unique situations that come up. Um, we don't know what family members know about Alzheimer's and the dementia at the time that we sit down with them. We will soon find out. But I can think of several occasions in which I have had a man or a woman who has lost a spouse due to dementia who has remarried and now finds him or herself in the same situation after just a short time of marriage married to somebody who is now receiving a diagnosis of dementia so you know there are so many different situations that it takes a lot of resources, a lot of flexibility and sensitivity and and a lot of commitment to um, uh, try to see the way through, as I like to say, you know, to walk the path with the patient and family. Well, we are going to go to a break and we will return shortly with Dr. Ellen Schultz to talk more about the role of the primary care physician in the care of persons with dementia. So please stay with us. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. 
Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Dr. Ellen Schultz, a graduate of Baylor College of Medicine, board certified in family practice, and after a many-faceted career now in private practice uh, as a family practitioner for about 14 years or so, Ellen, that you've done family practice, and he is helping us to understand um, the perspective that a family practice person has in overall dementia care. It is generally the first place that the recognition of dementia comes up. It is the most common place that workup for ruling out reversible ideologies takes place. And he has been with the patient generally, he or she has been with that patient generally years before the diagnosis and will continue to be with that patient for years after the diagnosis. So, um, Alan, again, thank you so much for being with us and for having this conversation with us. I would like to um, talk with you a little bit about this. You know, I've said half-jokingly many times, Medicare is a really, really excellent healthcare system for acute disorders. But for chronic disorders, which comprise the overwhelming majority of Medicare resources, which utilize overwhelming majority of Medicare resources, it's a system that really has not been able to catch up with the times. And um, so when we look at how much it costs our, our government, which means our taxpayers, to pay for diabetes care, hypertension care, um, coronary artery disease care, uh, renal failure care, if we look at how much it costs to Medicare to uh, provide care for those conditions, then we add dementia into the picture. Those persons who have dementia, the cost of care for those chronic health conditions triples or quadruples. And on the one hand, you're not surprised to hear that, you know, but yet on the other hand, what do we do about this? That is a very good question, and I think it's something that we're wrestling with as we speak. I have seen a phenomenal transition in how Medicare is delivered from the year 2000 till the current year 2014. And a lot of that has to do with what you just mentioned as far as doing a fantastic job managing acute illnesses, but struggling with managing the chronic illnesses. And I think that the reason for that is the chronic illnesses are more difficult to see. However, they consume huge amounts of resources in medication and if not treated properly, lead to very expensive acute illnesses. So I think that the trick is figuring out how you can prevent the acute illness with more proper management, more timely management of the chronic illnesses. 
And unfortunately, that takes putting dollars into things that you don't get an immediate return from. Everyone can see the benefit of having a broken bone fixed, having a blocked heart vessel fixed immediately. But it's much more difficult to see the effect of exercise, the effect of proper dietary instruction, the effect of taking medication on a regular basis as, a re as opposed to sporadically on chronic illnesses. But you can bet, and the data seems to reflect the fact, that if not managed properly, these illnesses are far more expensive than their acute care cousins, brothers, and sisters. And the complicating impact of the presence of dementia um, would have, among other things, to do with what we generally refer to as compliance, although adherence is, is often the more correct word there. But is the person doing, is the patient doing what the patient is supposed to be doing by the instructions of their health care provider? And um, uh, is that having a positive impact on the patient's level of functioning? And so one of the first things that comes to my mind with respect to adherence and compliance is, is does the patient even remember when he or she walks through the parking lot from the physician's office what the plan is and what the instructions are? So that alone can really complicate the care of the chronic medical condition, right? That is why it's so important for individuals to have support, both support in the office when they come in for examinations or telephonically for other people to be part of that exam room process and for the caregivers to be aware of the plan in addition to the person who's actually experiencing it. And it does have a lot of factors that, that contribute to this. Education, the stage in the dementing process where a person is, the complexity of their medication regimen. I'm often embarrassed by the number of medicines that are clinically indicated to treat a person who is over 65 with dementia, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, hyperlipidemia, and such just following the guidelines. And I can't imagine how it feels if you're beginning to not be able to think as clearly as you did 10, 15 years ago trying to follow these kind of recommendations. We're lucky that electronic health records have begun to help us with this. It's kind of a blessing and a curse. Uh, again, uh, we've got the uh, power to name these new uh, electronic helpers as either good or evil. And in some instances, they tend to depersonalize the office experience. In other instances, they offer family members the opportunity to access uh, their loved one's medical record, their medications, and to find out and to be able to revisit what the plan of care is. You know, um, nationally, if you just look at the concepts of compliance and adherence. Nationally, people are much, much less compliant with their health care providers than is generally thought. 
you know, the the research that I have read certainly puts it well below 50% and often in the 30s. Uh, one of the things that, that um, when a patient with dementia comes to my office, one of the things that I always insist on is that there be some accountability just for medications. Who will count the pills or check the the uh, organizer, the pill organizer, to see whether the patient's on the correct date, see whether there are pills left in previous dates and things like that, with the understanding that while adherence is not good nationally, regardless of dementia, you know, mistakes in this area can be lethal. They can be absolutely devastating to a person. So... Um, it's one of the things that uh, that I always like to bring up, even though sometimes patients don't like it. I ask them just to be mad at me, but do it anyway. You know? Well, and Sam, we are in kind of a liminal space. We do have all of these new technologies coming down the pipeline with respect to being able to monitor through radio frequency signals from the pills themselves, whether a person is taking them or whether they're not taking their medications. So I think particularly with large corporations entering this this healthcare market and different technologies becoming available we're going to see a huge transition in that compliance and adherence that you're speaking about I think that you're right, and uh, and that will be most welcome. I know that CMS attempted, I'm going to say roughly 10 years ago, they had a call center, which I think was in Arizona, and what they attempted to do with um, their demo group that they were working with, their demonstration group that they were working with, was call the patient in their home and ask them whether they'd taken the medication and encourage them to take it. And while on the one hand that sounded like a really good idea, on the other hand, there were a lot of people, older people, that really did not know somebody that they had never met, calling them and, and trying to have such a personal discussion with them. So while it was a good idea, on the one hand, it was not a very successful undertaking on the other hand. so Agreed, and that's where, again, the art and the science of medicine have to work hand-in-hand hand and not against each other. There are other examples of third-party payers trying to enhance their beneficiaries' care by going to their homes and offering health screenings. And I have many patients in my population who are not comfortable with an unknown person knocking on the door and asking to come in and check their blood pressure and look at their medications. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I think one of the other ways that the presence of dementia complicates the management of other conditions probably has to do with symptom reports. You know, when a person is being treated for ABC, generally when they have follow-up visits with a primary care physician, that physician wants to know how are those targeted symptoms doing? You know, are, are, you, are your feet swelling as much as they had been? Are you as mobile? Are your joints hurting as much as they had been? And if that patient is not remembering well, then the physician does not get accurate information without a caregiver there to help guide that process. That's exactly right. And when people begin to show signs and symptoms of dementia, that's when, if I have not already involved family members, I really reach out and make that one of the top priorities because I realize that the person will not be able to give me a good history and may need some help as well as not be able to remember what the plan is. And I reassure them that 
two heads are better than one and, and that more people are definitely welcome for this sort of uh, treatment regimen that can be very complicated. And that's right. So the caregiver, so much pressure on the caregiver and we've done a number of programs on that topic and I would certainly encourage you to go back and review some of them but the uh, the caregiver has the pivotal role in interfacing Listen, this is a complicated healthcare system that we live with today. It is very, very complicated. And I would almost say if you can navigate the, the healthcare system cognitively, you're probably doing very well and better than most. Well, and Sam, just piggybacking on that, if you don't realize how complicated this system is, talk to any Medicare beneficiary and talk to them about their open enrollment and the process that they have to go through picking what Medicare supplement they're going to choose or wh which Medicare Advantage program they're going to choose and how that impacts which medicines they're going to have a larger or lesser copay for and when they're going to hit the donut hole, all of these things. As if we can define that donut hole. You can because you live with that donut hole every day. But um well, and we did not even touch upon the cost of these medications and asking the person how they get the medications, if they're going to be able to continue to afford the medications, if they're able to go and pick up the medications or if they have some sort of a delivery system. It is incredibly complex and it really takes all of us working together to meet these challenges. That is correct. Well, we are going to go to a break and we will return for our fourth and final segment in just a couple of minutes. And uh, I look forward to more from Dr. Ellen Schultz. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. 
Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. We are back. Thank you for being with us. We are talking with Dr. Ellen Schultz, a uh, physician board certified in family practice, a graduate of Baylor College of Medicine, a knowledgeable man. And Ellen, again, before we get to the end of the program, thank you so much for being here. We were talking about the medical compliance issue, and there are two things that arose from that. One point I wanted to make just briefly, one of the um, technological advances that I've really appreciated is once-a-day dosing. You know, when you have to take a medicine four times a day the way that, and there are still some that have to be done that way, um, or even twice a day, the adherence does drop off uh, simply because of memory. So once a day dosing is a lot um, a lot simpler for someone with memory compromise to accomplish effectively. The other, though, you were mentioning cost of medications. Cost of medications is something that I deal with on a daily basis. It has to do with not just the cost of procuring a medication on a cash-based basis, but also depending on what that person's insurance is and what sort of a benefit is available. And I have found instances where a generic medicine will actually cost a person more through their copay than a name brand medicine. And unfortunately, these are very fluid and will change from year to year and sometimes even within the same year. So it's very challenging to put cost into this mix, especially when you're looking at different delivery systems, when you're looking at how many times a day these medications are dosed, as you mentioned, and when you're looking at, as I have to do, how they interact with all of the other medications that a person is taking. Uh, Some medications are in the form of a transdermal patch, and you really need to take into account, you know, is that person exercising? What is their skin quality? Are they able to wear a patch? And when they put that patch on, then does it give them some sort of an allergic reaction because of the chemicals that cause the patch to stick onto the skin? So it is a real challenge determining cost and delivery and drug-drug interactions which is why relationship, I think, is critical and that people have access to their healthcare professionals in a timely manner as opposed to just going without their medications because they can't afford it, because it causes them to feel worse than if they did not take it, those sorts of things. 
Well, I really appreciate your sensitivity to that issue, and as our listeners can understand from what you've said, um, it's not as simple as take two aspirin and call me in the morning. You know, there's not a, a single medication that is applicable in every circumstance, and yes, sir. Well, and one thing which is particularly difficult is when you finally find the combination that works, then a third-party payer will determine that they are no longer going to cover that medicine. And you can write letters, you can complete paperwork, which is incredibly time-consuming, and still, even though it's the best combination for that person and they're tolerating it, you have to use a different medicine and then go through the same process. That is very frustrating, or the insurer changes. Either the, the patient makes a decision to go with a, another secondary policy, or uh, for some individuals whose spouse may still be working, there's a change in employment, or the employer changes the, the policy. So there are so many nuances that can come up. Let me talk with you about this issue time. How do you manage your time, and um, <laughs> what can you do to get more of it? How do you manage all of the demands that are placed on you, whether it be letters to insurance companies or forms to fill out or um, pre-certifications, you know, coordinating with the specialty physician and still see all the number of patients that you need to see that day and spend enough time with them so that when they leave, they feel that they had good care. So how do you do that? That is a moving target and... I'm adjusting to that probably with changes in my staff and how we organize our workflow. At least four times a year, we go through a significant change. A lot of it has to do with technology, and we try and maintain our focus as a patient-centered organization which values relationship and communication in a two-way manner with the people that we serve. I think that it's important to determine when things become unreasonable with respect to paperwork requirements. And when that occurs, I involve the patient's family, I involve the patient, and we come in and sometimes we will do a conference call in order to compose a letter or to communicate with a third-party payer or whatever is required in order to meet those needs. So it's, it's definitely a work in process, and I don't think that there's any one right answer. I have a phenomenal staff that I work with, and they take care of our population as I cannot do alone. Very nicely stated, and it is a moving target. It's just an ongoing battle. Well, um, so an individual receives the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, the caregiver, and um, hopefully fam other family members also are present. And there are a lot of things that they're going to need over the next few months and over the next few years. And I think that there are more resources available than people are aware of. But one of the challenges, especially that I have to deal with so often, is how do I match resources with the needs, you know, as we identify the needs. And one of the things that I have really appreciated has been the Alzheimer Association, and especially when they went to case management services. Not every office does it. Our office in town does it, and they do an outstanding job of it. But it basically is taking the time to sit 
with caregiver and family, listen to the things that they need, help them to prioritize, understand what's available in the community. Just as an example, a, a caregiver may be approaching burnout and the Area Agency on Aging may just have received some allocation of $20,000 to pay for respite care for individuals who have a need. Well, if the flow of communication is not there, there's no way that that uh, uh, resource would be made available to that family. So the Alzheimer's Association has has been absolutely outstanding in this area, and especially in the um, um, uh, resource allocation area. Sam, do you know if they have a Facebook page? They do. And um, and they also have a website, www.alz.org, and they have chapters all over the country, offices all over the country, and they have um, a national hotline that I can't remember right now, <laughs> so please forgive me for that, but it's easily obtainable from their website, and not only do they have that hotline manned 24 hours per day, 365 a year, but they speak over 100 different languages on that hotline, so there are resources nationally and there are resources locally, and it's a matter of, of trying to comb them all together into um, what is needed at the time. Dr. Alan Schultz, thank you so much for taking the time with us and sharing your expertise and your experiences and especially allowing the listenership to understand and know you. I'm very grateful to you for that because I know there are so many demands on your time and um, uh, we will continue to do what we can to educate the public and to uh, provide services, make new services available, provide advocacy efforts. There's so much to be done, but there are a lot of people out there trying to do it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Good night. Thank you for listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.